I'm going to start with John 1, and I'm going to go through verses 1 through 18 of John's gospel. This is John. John is the last of the first four gospels that start Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. Uh, it's before the book of Acts in your Bible. So if you need any help finding it, I'm going to read verses 1 through 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him. And apart from him, not even one thing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of mankind. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not grasp it. A man came one sent from God, and his name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light, so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. This was the true light that, coming into the world, enlightens every person. He was in the world, and the world came into being through him, and yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not accept him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. To those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of a man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John testified about him and called out saying, this was he of whom I said, he who is coming after me has proved to be my superior because he existed before me. For of his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. God, the only Son, who is in the arms of the Father, he has explained him. Lord, bless our hearts, bless our minds. Bless our hearts through our minds, apprehending you in your word. Bless me to preach, Lord, with honor and not dishonor, to bring clarity and not confusion. Protect your people from my imperfections and deficiencies in my preaching. Lord, make to grow the seed you plant in our heart today through your perfect word. Bring it to blossom in our lives. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. So this is our, our last Advent Christmas message. Um, and um, I'll talk more next week about where we're headed after this. But last Sunday, we ended with this picture of Christ as the one who has come to undo this terrible, ex this terrible exchange we talked about in Romans 1. And you remember the terrible exchange. If you weren't here last week or didn't hear that message, we looked at a terrible exchange that occurs in Romans 1, summed up in Romans 1.25, where it says, Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity because they exchanged. Here's the terrible exchange. They exchanged, and he's talking about all of mankind. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. If you want to know what has gone wrong among nations, among ethnicities, among societies, uh, between uh, Republicans and Democrats, between police and protesters, between the rich and the poor, if you want to know what's gone wrong between husbands and wives, between mothers and daughters and fathers and sons, it finds its root in this terrible exchange, in this terrible truth that Romans 1 tells us. We were created to love 
and serve and worship our creator above all else, above all else. But instead we've put created things, one another, wealth, power, pleasure, affection, praise, ambition, control. We've put all these things, many of these things which are good in themselves, mankind has sought to deny God because he wanted to put these things above God. And denying God's place as our greatest treasure is our greatest mistake. Denying God our greatest love, our greatest affection, our greatest loyalty, our greatest trust, our greatest obedience, all of which he rightly and justly deserves, is the terrible exchange that we've made. And putting that affection in ourselves and one another and in what we can get from the created world. And in his judgment for this first and greatest mistake, this first and greatest sin, trading in God for what we can get out of the universe God has made, God has handed mankind over to our sinful desires, our own hearts. And, and let me just say briefly, I'm not going to re-preach that message last week, but let me just say briefly, if you don't understand this terrible equation, this terrible exchange, if you don't understand that it's the root of all secondary sins, all sins like sexual immorality or laziness or bitterness are, are at the root secondary to the great sin of, of trading God in for the creation that he's made. If you don't understand that, then the Bible and Christ, as it truly presents itself, it will, it will make little to no true sense to you. If you don't understand this exchange that we've talked about, it will either be like a vaccine for a disease that you don't think really exists, or it will be like a piece of putty. The Bible will be like a piece of putty that you try to shape into whatever shape you want to get it in to suit whatever your heart wants it to, to suit. But if you do understand this primary foundational problem that we have, our rejection of God as our greatest treasure, as our first love, and God's response of judgment by handing us over to our sinful desires, then, then the Bible will make sense. The, the, the story of the prodigal son who sold out his father to get what this world could offer him will make sense to you. The story of Jesus in fierce anger, turning over the tables. Maybe the greatest display of anger we ever see from Jesus' life is when he goes to his father's temple and the people have traded in the worship of father to make money at the marketplace, turn this temple into a marketplace. And he has terrible anger about it. It will make sense to you. It, it, his, Jesus' call to die to ourselves daily, take up our cross and follow him will make sense to you. Jesus promised to be our Sabbath, to be our greatest rest, will make sense to you. Sexual morality and, and marriage as a picture of the gospel, as opposed to simply a picture of how we can enjoy this life, it will make sense to you. As you understand this terrible exchange and God's remedy for it, the scriptures will look clearer and clearer. And, and so with this terrible exchange in the backdrop now, I'd like to look at John's Christmas stories. We said last week, Christmas is the solution to this terrible exchange. And, and John doesn't have a, a nativity story. He doesn't have Gabriel announcing uh, the birth of John the Baptist to Zechariah or warning Mary and Joseph to flee Egypt. Well, actually that may not have been Gabriel, but we, we don't have that. We don't have Bethlehem. We don't have a baby in a manger in John's story. So we don't get that birth narrative of Christmas that we get in, in Luke, for instance. But for all that's missing in John's, in terms of nativity story, John's picture of Christ coming into the world carries so much weight in so few verses that, I, I mean, this isn't hyperbole. I, I think if we had five years to cover John 1, we could not do it the justice it deserves. In, in fact, in this one sentence at the beginning of John, he starts his gospel with something that speaks to not just the rest of this passage, but, but the whole rest of his book and, and the whole Bible. Look at verse 1 with me. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word 
was God. I mean, you, you can probably tell that that is significantly difficult to understand extremely deep theology. And it is. I mean, I, I've studied this for at different points for the last, you know, 20 something years, and I'm still struggling to get my head above the water of it. Um, but, but in this short sentence, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. John is setting the stage for all that's going to come in his whole book. But also for, for obviously inclusive of that is all that he's going to, that's going to come in this smaller passage that we're going to look at. So I'm going to kind of use this sentence in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And particularly this idea that Jesus is the word. I'm going to use that as sort of a, a, a hermeneutical key, an interpretive key to look at everything else that happens in this short section that we're looking at today. So let's, first of all, let's just look closely at this word, word. Jesus was the word. John uses a Greek word for word. He's writing his gospel in Greek and he's writing to Greek speaking people and Greek thinking people. And he uses this word logos. When you see in the beginning was the word and the word was, was God. The Greek person would have read logos. And, and there was a lot of heft that was carried in that meaning for, for Greek idea, for Greek thinking people or people used to Greek ideas. This word logos, it, it carries the idea of, of truth or meaning. You can hear the, word, the, the root for our word, logic, in it, right? Logos, logic. And that, that's purposeful. The idea of logic is related to this word for word called logos or logos. To the Stoics of, of ancient Greece, the logos, the idea of logos was synonymous or related to reason or rationality or logic it, or the idea of ultimate truth or meaning on which all things depend or and, and by which all things exist. And it, so it means more than just like logic, like that's logical. Like you think of Mr. Spock, like that's logical. That's illogical. If you're a Star Trek person, Spock was always trying to find the meaning in something, the truth, the reason why it existed. And, and you know, it's we, we can't just look at Spock, but but that kind of points to it. It's a difficult term to try to unpack perfectly. But it's more than just logic. It, it, it speaks to ultimate truth. If someone would ask you, what's the meaning of life? Or what's the point of all of this? They're asking about the reason for all things, the, the, the logic at the heart of, of why, the ultimate why is answered by the logos. Why do things exist? What's the meaning behind life? So logos is related to, to, to that which tries to make sense of the world, to get behind the reason for which all things are or wh why all things should be. You, you get the idea of sanity from this idea. A sane person lives by wisdom and understanding. They, they live by reason. They live by, by a kind of soundness to their existence. When, when, Moses, when Moses encountered the burning bush in Exodus 3, and he asked God what his name was, God said, I am that I am. God was saying, among other things, I am the reason for all things. And he gave Moses his name. And I, and I think there's a connection here between the logos of the Greek idea and what the Hebrews understood as God's name, the I am behind everything else. You and I and clouds and sun and mountains, we all, our existence is all sourced in this ultimate existing one the I am. And I think that's connected to this idea of logos. So when you think of logos, you can think of the reason for all things or the ultimate truth um, as we try to understand it. So John says the ultimate truth, the ultimate reason behind all things is God and, and was with God and is God. Jesus is the ultimate truth about God, which is the reason for all things and makes sense of all things. And I know that I think that's that's probably as deep as we're going to try to get into that aspect of Lagos. But there's there's two other aspects of Lagos or the word I want to talk about. And I think they'll be a little bit easier to understand than this first idea of ultimate reason or ultimate truth. So putting putting that aside for a second, ultimate reason, ultimate truth. 
Let's go to the second idea behind logos or the word. Revelation or expression. The revealing or the expression of, of truth. And we can see this in our English language of word, right? Like central, the, central to the idea of word when we hear about a word is the idea of expression. Words express truth. They express meaning. They reveal what's in our minds. We have ideas in our minds and it's words that reveal that gets what's in here out there. If I have a thought about something and, and I don't tell it to Josh, then Josh has no idea what was in me. But if I put words to the ideas, if I give vocalization to the idea, then Josh gets to see what was hidden inside my head, right? And that's the idea here. Central to the idea of word is also the idea of, of re revelation or expression. Words reveal and express. Whatever truth there is in the universe, it's not known to man unless it is expressed, unless it is revealed. This is why John not only says that Jesus was the word, but in this chapter, as we go on, he'll say that he is the light, right? Jesus is not only the ultimate meaning, the ultimate truth about God, but he is the light of God. He came to reveal that truth. Just as words reveal truth, Jesus is the light that shines into darkness. And darkness can't grasp it, it can't understand it, it can't over, overcome it. But the light shines, the reason, the ultimate meaning is expressed into the universe. So, so Jesus is, John says, the ultimate truth about God coming out into the universe to show us the ultimate truth about God. John calls him in verse 9, the true light the truth about God shining into our hearts, he says, that enlightens every person. So Jesus is not just the word hidden in heaven with God from the beginning. He is, in verse 14, he's the word made flesh. He's come to us to reveal God to us. Verse 18, no one has seen God at any time. Yet God, the only son who is in the bosom or the arms of the father, has explained him. Jesus has revealed God to us. John says that Jesus explains God to us. If Jesus reveals God to you, then you are not in the darkness anymore. John says that we have seen his glory through Jesus. We see through Jesus God's glory, that is his light, his radiance as the only son from the father. And this is important too. It'll become important later in this chapter. John calls Jesus the only son from the father. And we think about sons and fathers a little bit differently than, than, than they did in, in that day in a couple of different ways. But, but in some ways we can relate. Th think of DNA for a second. A, a son carries his father's DNA inside him. And, and because of that reason, a son often looks like his father. And, and so Jesus, John says, perfectly looks like his father. Because he's a son, he images, he shows you his father. He reveals the father to us because he's the son, the perfect son, who's the perfect image of his father. Jesus will say at the Last Supper, he'll say to Philip, when, when Philip asks Jesus to show him the father, Jesus will say to Philip, Philip, don't you know me? After I've been with you such a long time, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. So Jesus is not only the word, the, the reason behind all things, the ultimate meaning of the universe, but he is that meaning revealed to us, revealed to us, shown to us, put on display. So we have those two ideas, ultimate reason or meaning, and then the revelation of that ultimate reason or meaning in Jesus. And then here's the third thing I want to say about the words. We've got first one is, is ultimate reason or meaning. we got the second part, which is the revelation, the expression of that ultimate reason or meaning. And now here's the third thing I want to say about the word. The word explains God's saving power. The word denotes or communicates God's saving power. If, if we recognize that not only was John a, a, a person who grew up in a Greek culture, in, 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 in Hellenized Judea in Israel, but he was also a person who grew up in, in Hebrew culture. 
and knew the Old Testament well, then we understand that he's bringing in into this word logos, into this word word, the character that the Old Testament would give to the word. So if we draw in the Old Testament, the meaning of word is richer still. It's, it's for instance, in Psalm 33, it is by the word of the Lord that the heavens were made. John says, nothing was made apart from Christ. The, the Psalms say, nothing was made apart from the word. And so John tells us Christ was the word. Nothing came into being until God, Psalm 33 says, gave the commandment, spoke the word. When God speaks, he's giving expression to his divine will. And at least in that sense, God speaks. Psalm 33 says again, he spoke and it came to be. When God speaks, he gives expression to what's inside him. And when he speaks commandment, he gives expression to his divine will, which is inside him. So this is what God does from the very beginning in Genesis. He speaks the word. God says, let there be light. And there is light. Psalm 33, coming back to it again, it says, he commanded and it stood firm. So God has ideas and purposes in his heart, but until he speaks it, until he makes a decision of the will and utters it out, it doesn't come to be. That's why he says nothing came into being without the word. And so in the Old Testament, you have this picture of the word of the Lord being God's active power, the way he does something. Listen to Isaiah 55. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater. So my word that goes out from my mouth, it will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and will achieve the purpose for which I sent it. In the Old Testament, the word of the Lord is the divine expression of his power. It's, it's the, the means of his activity, the means of his authority, the means of his power being accomplished in the world. Oxford professor and, and mathematician John Lennox was trying to explain the idea of God speaking life into existence through the, the genetic code. We talked about that several weeks ago. And, and John Lennox was trying to point to his agnostic friend that, hey, the Bible covers this. It says that God spoke and it came to be. And that's what we see in the genetic code. We see a language. And, and his agnostic colleague said, are you telling me that God has a larynx? Like, are you trying to tell me that God has vocal cords? And, and Lennox, you know, understood he's missing the whole point. It, it's not whether God has a deep voice or a high voice, but that he is a God who commands all things. He's a God who determines and decides and then gives utterance to that determination. His word carries out his intention. It brings to be what he has decided. And so Jesus is not only God's truth. Jesus is not only God's truth revealed. Jesus is God's truth and active work in, in powerful activity. So we have these three ideas behind word. We have truth or reason. We have revelation or expression of that truth and reason. And then we have this third idea of power or accomplishing something behind God's word. But what does Jesus accomplish? What is Jesus as God's word revealed meant to accomplish? And John tells us in, in verse 11, through 13. He says, he came to his own and his own people did not accept him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of a man, but of God. So Jesus is the word of God. He's the truth about God. He's the truth about God revealed to us. 
and he has a goal to accomplish. He has an, remember we said it's, it's God's word is also the active power of God to accomplish his divine will. And here's God's divine will that to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he would give the right to become children of God. That's the whole point of Jesus coming. That's the whole point of Christmas. That is why the truth was revealed to us so that we who would believe in his name would become children of God. This is in John's first chapter, the lightning bolt of the gospel. Not only has the word come down and revealed the truth to us, but he has done it so that we would become children of God. John says, whoever believes in his name, whoever believes in Christ, whoever puts their trust in the revelation of Jesus Christ as God's truth to us becomes a child of God. The son of God has appeared. If we want to put it in terms that we looked at in Romans one last week, the son of God has appeared to turn us from children of wrath back to children of God. And John says, this is done not by flesh, meaning it's not by physical birth. You don't become a Christian because your parents were Christians. And you're not excluded from Christ because your parents didn't believe in Christ. No, John says, this is a heavenly spiritual birth. He says, it's not by the will of man. We don't decide that we will be his children. We don't perform or accomplish our way into the kingdom. It's not by our wills, but rather it's by receiving the gift of God by faith in Jesus Christ. And though John doesn't say it in this chapter, we know that gift was, although free for us, it was not free for him. It's, it's a blood-bought gift paid for by the word made flesh who was slain for our sins. And John hints at this when he says, the word came in, the world came into being through him, and yet the world did not know him. Or he says, he, he came to his own, but his own did not receive him. He's alluding to the rejection of Christ and Christ's ultimate, ultimate travail in that rejection in the cross. But to us who have been given eyes to see the light of God's revelation of who he is in Jesus Christ, to those of us who can look at Jesus and say, I believe that he is who God is shown to me. I believe that he is God's ultimate expression of himself to us. To us, he is granted to be children of God. You, you, we might say that recognizing Jesus as God's ultimate truth revealed to us and including treasuring that truth is, is, is the sign, the seal that you are a child of God. And now I want to talk about children for a moment. I, when you hear children of God, I, I, I don't want you to think of toddlers or, or kind of, you know, children like my five-year-old son, you know, cute first day of school photos of kids on Facebook laughing and playing with their kids. When, when, when John says children here, I, I think he wants you to think of sons and daughters who have been nurtured, who are nurtured and cared for and taught and disciplined, yes, with, with the greatest love and affection possible from the best father, yes, but they're going towards maturity. They're going towards the place where they look like him. They look like their father. They act like their father. They talk like their father. And of course, because they have the very heart of their father in their heart, as children have their father's DNA. They have his name. His name is their name. They have his protection. They have his wealth. But best of all, the children have their father. He is their father. And this, this kind of gets to maybe what the Lord is burdened us to, is burdened that we would see this morning in endemic to to Kim's word and endemic to what Cameron said as well as singing that song tethered 
The greatest treasure of the gospel isn't that Jesus saves us, but that we were saved to experience Jesus. We have a father through Jesus Christ that we didn't have before. And he's been given to us to be the closest, most intimate and strongest relationship we could have. This is the goal of, of Jesus making us children of God. This is the reversal of the horrible exchange in Romans 1. If, if Romans 1, as we read it last week, is about the coming apart of God and his image bearers, John 1 is about the, the coming together, the reconciliation of God and his image bearers. So much so that we are called his very children, his very children. And he is called our, our very God. And again, I want you to think about that, that connection between image bearing and children of their father. If, if I saw a picture of all of your fathers when they were about your age, and, and I saw a picture of, and I had a picture of you at the same age, not in every case, but in many cases, I would be struck by something. In some of the cases of, of looking at you and your parents, your fathers at the same age, I would be struck that, that you look like them. Some of you bear your father's physical image to such a great degree that I could take some of those pictures and say, oh, that's Brando. I can tell that's Brando's dad or, oh, that's Buzz's dad. I can tell just looking, oh, that looks like Nancy. I could just put some of your fathers with you. And, and, and that's a physical metaphor for what God is doing in Christ Jesus for us. He, he is making you his child to look like him as it pertains to, to not your physical characteristics, but to your inner heart, your inner character, your inner person. And that's his ultimate goal for you. You're destined to look exactly like God as Jesus looks exactly like God. So that just as Jesus reveals the Father, so you too will be a perfect revelation of the Father in your way, I don't want to say that you'll be equal to Jesus, but I do want to say that you'll be perfectly conformed, as the Bible says, to his image. And, and so, again, I want to be careful to not stretch this farther than it's meant to be. You're not going to be the fourth, fifth, sixth, and seventh persons of the Trinity. But in the most crucial way, in 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 the way that matters towards the inner man, you will look like your father and you are being made to look like your father. And, and, and when, I, when I say the most important way for us, I'm, I'm speaking particularly of the way that when Jesus was on earth, we would look at him and say, how is he most reflecting who God was to us? How is he most reflecting who God was to us? How did he most tell us what his father looked like? And as I said last week, I want to draw on this string a little bit and pull it a little bit more. If we were to say, when we saw Jesus on earth, what was the most important thing that marked him? And I think we would say the most important thing that marked Jesus was his perfect love for his father. Just as his father perfectly loved him, Jesus perfectly loved his father in return. What you see when you look at Jesus is perfect trust, perfect delight, perfect dependence, perfect obedience, out of all out of love for his father. Jesus was God. Yes, he was God, yet it was his father's will that delighted him, not his own will. It was his father who Jesus said showed him all that the father was doing so that Jesus would do the same. It was only Jesus, it was only his father's will that Jesus sought to do and that Jesus depended on. This is the heart of the Son of God, the Son who loves the Father, who delights in the Father. And this is the heart that Jesus has purchased for you and I through his blood on the cross. This is what he came to accomplish at Christmas. In Galatians chapter 4, Paul is trying to explain to the Galatians the utter foolishness of going back to trying to 
achieve what God has given as a gift. If you understand Galatians, you understand the whole book is a is a largely a, an argument against legalism and an argument for depending on Christ by faith to save us. But he, in chapter four, he does something interesting. He introduces this idea of sonship and he says this, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Now, I want to get something out of the way quick here. Paul is not saying that, you know, many of you ladies here are hearing this and you're wondering, you know, maybe you're wondering, I'm a son. He's not saying that if you're a female, you're suddenly a male. He, he's speaking in terms that they would understand in that culture. Sons had the only rights to the benefits and privileges and inheritance of the family. So sons had inheritance rights, in other words, not daughters. And so Paul is saying that whether you're a male or a female, together in Christ, we all have, men and women, the full and richest privileges as sons from their fathers. You, you can see this across the epistles. In 1 Peter 3, uh, Peter is speaking to the real differences in the roles in a marriage between men and women. He's speaking to headship and submission. He acknowledges it. Yet in the midst of that, in the midst of that pastoral epistle about husbands and wives, he tells men to treat the women with honor and with understanding and not with harshness and not with selfishness. And here's why he says they're to treat the women that way. He says they are co-heirs. They are co-inheritors of the grace of life, meaning they have equal status as sons before God. And I, I think it's true, and it's worth noting here, that a woman who is in Galatians or a woman who was reading Peter's letter and read that they were co-heirs, co-inheritance, would probably be blown away by this. Paul is not arguing for, you know, all kinds of stuff that we can get into about gender and equality in terms of, um, um, you know, transgenderism or that kind of stuff. I mean, I mean, I think Paul would be would be at a minimum, he would be telling us that women and men have equal worth before God. Men do not have more worth before God than women. And, and, and he's communicating this not by trying to get into gender arguments, but by saying, listen, everybody, you are all sons of God. You are all equal co-heirs with all that God has for any of his human beings who belong to him in Christ Jesus. You get the same stuff. You all get the same stuff. You all get forgiven. You all get adopted. You all get reconciled. You all get peace with God forever. You, you all get to cry together, Abba, Father. God doesn't listen to the men more than he listens to the women. But, but that's not his point is to settle gender disputes. His point is to say to all of us, be blown away by this. You are now a son, a child of God. And you can say you're a daughter of God. And I think that's fine to say you are all sons and daughters of God. God is your father. That's the big deal. God is your father now. Like he really is your father. And he uses this term, Abba, father. Some people say it's daddy. I don't think it's daddy, but I, I, it still carries a, a, a reverence to it. But also there is a deep intimacy to it. It puts the reverence together with the intimacy. It might be more like dad. And it might be daddy. It's, but the point is, it is very close. It is this. It is very intimate. It is, it is your father. It is calling out to your father. And this is the greatest privilege that we get in adoption as his sons. To be able to say to God, you are my father now. You are my father. Just as much as Jesus says, you are my father. You get to say to God through Christ's blood, you are my father now. That's the greatest privilege we have.
And, and we need to, by God's grace, we need to feel that as the greatest privilege we have. I, I mean, if, if our hope in this world, if what drives us as believers, and this is kind of taking us back to that terrible exchange, right? If what drives us as believers is what we can receive from God in terms of this world, if our greatest hope and what drives us is what we can receive from God in terms of marriage and children and a salary and good health and acceptance from coworkers or acceptance from friends or peers or family workers or spouses, if, if our greatest hope is what this creation can offer us, then we are slowly starving to death spiritually, even as we fill ourselves with the hopes of this world. Because Christ came to give us his father to be our father. And that we might see there's nothing greater that we could ever hope for. That that is the greatest gift of the gospel is receiving God as our father and that relationship restored. That curse of Romans 1 undone. The last week of my father's life was and I mean my earthly father, in 2018, he went to be with the Lord in November. And, and the last week of my father's life was the greatest conscious experience for me of my relationship with him. And it was one of the greatest weeks of my life. But it was certainly the, my greatest conscious experience of my father was the last week of his life. And my father could not do a thing for me he could barely utter a sentence. In most days, he did not utter a sentence. He just sat in basically one position and had to be turned over and all this stuff by, by nurses and helpers. But God did something so amazing and beyond this world that week in my heart. And, and I want you to know, I am, I am way more confident than you, than, than you might fear or, or, or way more confident than, than you might know how it had nothing to do with my native character. Like, if you knew me, if, if you had to live in my house, you would know that I am so easily caught up in pettiness, in superficialities, in fleshly attitudes about all things. It would take you no time to say, Albert is a sinner who really needs the Lord if you, if you lived with me and you knew me deeply. And so I, I know this had nothing to do with my performance or my character. But that week, in his kindness, God saw fit to allow me to enjoy my father like I never had. I was just filled with a love for him and a joy with him in his presence as he died on this bed over six days that I simply cannot explain. I just loved him so much. And, and, there was, and I felt his love for me. And, and there was ne there's never been a time in my life where I, where I could get less of anything from him than, than th those six days, except just the treasure of being with him. And I think in some small way, and I just want to say again, just for the sake of, of me not being the hero, you know, of, of that story, that wasn't me. And, and that, you know, that's not, I still have sweet memories of that time, but it didn't last. It's not like every day I just have this great love for the memory of my dad. And it, it was a gift that God gave me over six days. And it's not how I walk in my waking hours. Again, just live with me through a, a typical day. And whew, you'll see that I am very much in a battle of, with, my, with my fleshly heart. But that week was so special. And I think in some small way, that was a small reflection of what God has given us in Christ in seed form. And what I mean is the ability to love God and enjoy God and delight in God, not because of we want marriage or we want cars or we want to be perfectly healthy or, or we want you know, whatever this creation can offer, including many good things, but love him simply because he has reconciled us to himself and we get to enjoy his presence. 
And, and again, the analogy with my dad breaks down because God is so much more beautiful than my father. He's so much more majestic and holy and perfect. But but the part that I want to connect to is he gives us the gift of being able to love him, not to, to love him more than the things he has created, to love him more than the marriages he gives us or the jobs he gives us or the the health he gives us or the praise of people and acceptance of friends and family that he allows us to have. That's what he has given to us, the ability to love him above all things, to love him with all our mind, soul, strength, and heart. This is where he is taking us as his sons. This is the great reversal of the terrible exchange. And so as I wrap up this message, and I am wrapping it up, my question for you and me as we head into 2021 is, how might God have you grow in your experience of of being his sons and daughters? How might God have you grow in your experience of him being your father? And, and you know, I, I, I'm simply saying, how might God have you enjoy him more, delight in him more, obey him more, out of love for him? And, and, and I've been trying to, I was struggling to think of it, how, how to picture this for you. But but if if you took your life and you put it on a table, like you took your relationships, you took your jobs, you took your family, you take, you know, you took what you read, you took what you watch, how you use your phone, what you eat, your work hours, the time you give to your friends, to sleep, to exercise, to quiet times, to everything. And you put it all up on a table, your hobbies, if you could theoretically put your life up on a table, if you took it all and you put it on the table and you brought it all before God and you said to God, is there anything, perhaps one thing here, you want me to change so that I can love you more fully, so that I can experience you more deeply as my father? I want to encourage you to seek God about that and to see what he says. And, and, and before you get too overwhelmed, I want to repeat. I'm not suggesting that you deal with everything in your life at once. I, I cannot imagine that that would be God trying to get you to adjust 75 different things in one season. That God is gracious. God is compassionate. He is gentle and humble of heart. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. And though I cannot speak directly for the Holy Spirit in your personal life, I do not think it's likely that he would try to have you arrange every aspect of your life at once. That would be that would be impossible. But what I am suggesting is that you come before him with your life on the table before him and you spend some quality time in prayer before the new year and simply ask him to lead you in at least one way in your life right now that might best serve your relationship with him. Many years ago, I, I heard this put in a practical way in terms of thinking through it that, that I thought was really, really helpful. And I want to bring this back to you, though. Maybe I brought it to you before at different points, but it's always stuck with me the, the way that this it was C.J. Mahaney. I was hearing this pastor, C.J. Mahaney, at a, at a sermon like 15 years ago. Maybe it was 17 years ago, 20 years ago. It was a long time ago. But he was he was kind of trying to put this idea in concrete forms. And he was saying he was saying, come before the Lord and ask him, Lord, is there anything in my life that you would have me, and he used three words, that you would have me limit, that you would have me eliminate, or you would have me cultivate? Is there anything in my life that you would have me limit, like less exposure to my phone, or I, I don't know what it would be, but it, it might be less movie watching, or it might be less sleep. It might be less waking hours. It might be less staying up late, you know, or is there anything? And then, so that's the limit. And then he says, is there anything in my life you'd have me eliminate? Like cut out altogether. Like maybe there's a friendship or relationship you have that you know is pulling you away from God. It, it's not, it's just not good for you. And God would say this for right now, it needs to go. It needs to significantly change. You need to eliminate it. Maybe it's a battle with what you're looking at. And you don't have to wonder, is this something God wants me to limit? You know God wants this gone from your life. 
Is there anything you would have me eliminate, cut out altogether? And then lastly, is there anything you want me to cultivate? Is there anything I need to start or do more of? Is there any relationship I need to push into more deeply? Is there any friend I need to reconcile with? Is there any love I need to fan into flame between me and, and a parent or a spouse or a friendship? Is there reading your word that I need to get going on? Do I need to cultivate time with you that I'm not having right now? I don't know what God will say to you if you ask him, Lord, here's my life. Is there anything you want me to limit or eliminate or cultivate? I don't know what God will say to you, but I do encourage you to seek him about this because the nature of God is that he would answer a request like this brought to him in faith, that he would give you wisdom for such a thing. He is your father. And if you come to him saying, Lord, I want to, I want to improve my relationship with you. Here's my life. What would you have me adjust? The nature of God's heart is that he is going to meet you in that and give you wisdom for that. And, and if you're having trouble processing that, I encourage you to talk to others about what you think you might be hearing if you feel you need wisdom. But, but I know that he made you as his child to know him and to love him and to serve him above all else. This is the great undoing of the terrible exchange of Romans 1 that we would love him and treasure him above all else. This is the miracle of what Christ came to purchase for us, that we would really be able to love him above all things, not perfectly, but truly. And so I think if you approach him with that intent to more fully experience him as his child, he will meet you. All right, folks, that's all I have today. Let's, let's pray together. Let me pray over you and and just and let you guys go off into your day. Lord, I just thank you for this time. Thank you for sending Jesus. The word of God, the truth about God revealed to us so that we could be made your sons and your daughters. I pray God that you would please give us grace. To do whatever we need to do. to keep you or to put you at the center of our hearts again. And Lord, maybe for many of us, we feel that you are perfectly as, as well as we can see, you are where you should be in our hearts right now. But maybe for, and so Lord, help us to keep doing that. But maybe for others of us, there, there are practices, there are decisions, there are habits of life. There are ways we deal with our time or relationships that need to change. So that we, Lord, can position ourselves to love you more deeply and experience you more fully as our Father. Please give us wisdom for that. I thank you, God, so much, my brothers and sisters. I pray that you would bless them and keep them today. I pray that you would have great mercy on our church family. I pray that you would fan into flame the light of our church and not remove its lampstand. I pray that you would help us, Lord God to keep following you, and to know what it means to follow you more together. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.